and welcome to another edition of the Village's Daily Sun Sports Podcast. I'm senior writer Drew Shaltry. excited to uh, welcome you guys back. It's been a while since we had a podcast. We've been off and on a little bit with the holidays and some travel and folks being in and out in the, of the office. Jeff and I have been scattered to the winds for the better, part, so. <laughs> the better part of the last month. Uh, excited to welcome in JT Wilcox as well today. Cody Hills will be joining us later. To JT talk has about. held the fort while we've That's been gone. That's true. JT, JT's been putting in a lot of work to make up for, the, for both of us in our absence. So I uh, appreciate him being here and being here for the last few weeks. Weeks as well. Uh, as I was saying, Cody Hills will be here later to talk football. We will get to talk golf finally for the first time in a while. But we're excited today. It seemed poetic almost to bring in JT to talk after the first week of wildcard games in the NFL since we had him on after the first week of NFL games at the beginning of the season. So we're going to talk a little bit about the wildcard round and some of the storylines going on, go through some of these games and uh, look at the exciting, not so exciting things that have happened. And first of all, we're going to start well with, I think, the most exciting thing that happened this week, and it was with one of our Florida teams, the Jaguars come back from down 27 to nothing in that game against the Chargers. First of all, one of the most remarkable playoff games that we've seen. Uh, certainly one of the biggest comebacks uh, in the history of the NFL playoffs, sort of things that makes legends and cost people jobs, and uh, depending on which side you're looking from. But guys, just where do we kind of start with that one? Well, for me, you have to be impressed with the job that Doug Peterson did as head coach. Uh, someone who's been even kill, even kilter kind of guy, really kept them on a level, on the level all season. And given that he's been there and done that, he's won a Super Bowl with the, the Philadelphia Eagles. You see that kind of influence that he's had on this, on this franchise and on this team specifically, uh, for them to be able to stay in that, stay competing all the way to the end. And credit Trevor Lawrence. I mean, and. And first of all, anyone that goes out and celebrates a win at the Waffle House, yeah, fan in me, yes. fan in yes. me, yes. fan in me. I consider me a fan now of Trevor Lawrence for the rest of his life. Uh, but definitely for someone to bounce back the way he did, four interceptions at first and to come back and throw four touchdown passes speaks volumes to his character and what he was able to just continue to keep pounding the grindstone, as they say, and keep fighting. So kudos to them. Big win. Huge win. Huge win. And I want to kind of – elaborate on both of those Peterson remember at one time that the Jacksonville Jaguars were at three and seven yeah and Doug Peterson walks into a meeting and he says I have a crystal ball this is going to come down to the final week of the regular season against the Tennessee Titans and he was right and they beat the Titans and got in and I don't know necessarily what he said at halftime but I think it had to be along the lines of just settle down. We've done this before. Think of how far we have come back already this season. And so for him to be that sort of calming influence for a team with a lot of young guys whose heads have to be spinning, including Trevor Lawrence, and to be able to come out and say, let's just cut down on the turnovers. Let's get rid of that. Our defense is playing decently Let's see if we can put some points on the board. Although, if you listen to Peyton Manning, all that happens at halftime is you go in, use the bathroom, <laughs> eat a couple oranges, and the coach comes and says, all right, let's go play the second half. And sometimes that does happen. But I think in a, in a crisis situation, it's up to a, a leader, whether it's a coach or a player, to say something to kind of get 
get you out of the mindset that you're in. It also did occur to me that Trevor Lawrence in college has come back from a couple of these type of deficits. Uh, I remember one in particular against Oklahoma in the college football playoff where Clemson had to scratch and claw and needed the entire 30 minutes of the second half to get to the national championship game. So in his mind, he had done it before. And I think that's where we, we've seen a great maturity in Trevor Lawrence, and you got to give a lot of credit to Trevor for that, but I think Doug Peterson becoming his coach is another huge factor. And Trevor Lawrence kept alive one of the more interesting novelty stats out there, which is that he has never, as a starter in a competitive football game, lost on a Saturday. High school, college, pro, never lost on Saturday. Now are they playing on Saturday this week? I believe they are. I believe they are. I think oh, that's right. Why? So yeah, this <laughs> we're looking at Jags and hammer the over. Let's on, go hammer the over on the Jaguars on a Saturday. So, that's an that's an interesting one. But no, I think that there's a, a little bit of the mindset had to be we're already so deep in this hole. Whatever we can salvage from this is gravy, which is kind of where I think the Jaguars were all season long. Coming in, the expectations were not high. They were not supposed to win the division. And I said early on that if this division winner was sitting around 500, that the Jags could be there at the end, and they did manage to get to that point. I thought they'd be more competitive this year, but this was supposed to just be as long as they showed development, it would be a successful season. So I think that where they are right now is, you know, building towards something. And it's not just Trevor Lawrence. Christian Kirk was playing better down the stretch, kind of yes. uh, redeeming a little bit of that contract that so many people thought was uh, so big. Marvin Jones Jr. is a little bit revitalized uh, down the stretch here in this offense. That defense has been playing really, really well down the back end. They spent a lot of money in that secondary. The pass rush is looking really good. So I think that things are starting to click all around in Jacksonville. It's not just Trevor Lawrence finally figuring things out. This was a roster that had a lot of questions coming into the year and a lot of pieces that were young or new to Jacksonville. And so seeing it all kind of start to work out, I think is exciting for the people in that building and for that fan base in Jacksonville. But I think this is something that maybe not for these playoffs, given what they're going to be up against this week in Kansas City, but going forward can become sustainable, that they've sort of got an infrastructure now and they believe in that coaching staff and Jacksonville might finally be competitive again. I mean, you look at Travis Etienne, who's another one of those yeah. young pieces mm-hmm. and someone who's also come along this season, especially in the second half, much to my delight as he was on my fantasy football team. Uh, but definitely, if they can run the ball, if he can, they can establish a run game this coming Saturday, uh, and if it is on Saturday, look out Kansas City. But if they can definitely establish a run game, uh, and he can, and Travis Etienne is a big part of that, they can stick in with, with Kansas City, in my opinion. And it's just a matter of keeping tra- uh, Patrick Mahomes on the sideline as long as possible, limiting the amount of possessions that he has. You can't turn the ball over four times against Kansas City right. because you're going to pay. That's going to turn into four touchdowns, at least three. So you can't do that. I think you can't do that again. But definitely, if you can establish a run game with Travis Etienne, I think they have a good shot. Yeah, I think the flip side of that game, though, that we haven't talked about yet is the Chargers and how bad of a collapse that was. And I think a lot of it comes down to Brandon Staley. Like you were saying, the, if you give the Chiefs that kind of lead, they're not going to let off the gas pedal, you know, really ending this thing uh, and burying you. The Chargers only scored the field goal in the second half. They only ran the ball seven times while protecting a 20-point lead, and that's kind of inexcusable, especially when you see a team gaining momentum. You just need to keep your defense on the sideline for a little bit, give them some time. I know that 
that you have great receivers on that Chargers offense and Justin Herbert is the guy and everything like that. But Brandon Staley's clock management has been poor in the past, but seven runs in a half when you're protecting a lead like that against a team that's gaining all this momentum is just inexcusable. To and me. you have one of the toughest running backs yes. in the league and Austin Eckler yeah. is built for this type of he had a great situation season too. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it, it was just a, a shocking, shocking thing to see. And I can't imagine another team really failing to protect a lead in that particular win. Jacksonville has house money now. And yeah, exactly. those sometimes can be the most dangerous teams to play. The ones that can just go out there, let it all hang out because they, Hey, we're not supposed to be here anyway. So Hey, why not us? And we saw Cleveland almost do it to Kansas city just a couple of years ago. So uh, it's entirely possible that they could get in there and they can do a lot of the things that give Kansas city trouble. I talked about that pass rush and how good they are. If the secondary, which again is playing better can give, those edge rushers a little bit of time to get to Patrick Mahomes, get him off his spot. That can give them some trouble. And then offensively, you know, if they can kind of hang with them in the first half, again, like you said, can't really make all those mistakes early on. But if they can get going early and kind of hang with Kansas City till halftime, this could be a really interesting game. It could be. Definitely could be. Moving on to some of these other games, uh, other Florida teams were not as successful. Uh, the Dolphins didn't really have high expectations, obviously, uh, down to their third string quarterback there. But you know, hung in with the Bills for a little bit, I thought was interesting. They The Buffalo Bills did not look great in that one. I thought that Josh Allen made some interesting decisions, some weird choices. Uh, it almost felt like after he hit that early deep ball to Stephon Diggs, he thought that he was just going to have it all day and was throwing a lot of stuff downfield when it seemed like the Dolphins were willing to give him anything underneath. Uh, but that kind of allowed the Dolphins to hang around in a somewhat low-scoring game. But it feels to me a little bit like Buffalo kind of underachieved over a lot of the back end of the season. They looked so dominant in the first half and then have really, I don't know if they got complacent. I don't know if they got sloppy. Obviously the injuries have been mounting up for them, but you know, JT, you were very bullish on the the bills at the beginning of the year. How do you feel about them right now at this point in the playoffs? I think this was their letdown game. I think after the emotional high of getting or seeing DeMar Hamlin, of you know, seeing him come back, and, and we thank God for that, you know, as he continues to recover. Um, and I think that first game back uh, against the Jets, we saw just how much of an emotional swell there was for them. And I think that was the high, and I think this past weekend was the low of that because you see having your hair on fire and going out there and playing like that like they did – it, it looks great, and that's why they were able to go out there and play against the Jets the way they did. But then against, I think against Miami, we saw kind of the downswing of that. You know, you can only keep that high energy level up for so long. And credit Miami, too. They they did the things. Credit Michael, Michael McDaniel. I won't call him Mike. His mom would kill me if I did. Michael McDaniel did a great job, I think. And a lot of people were kind of going after him for some of the things that the decisions that he made, especially that fourth and one that became a fourth and six after the lay of game. But he intimated that there was, I think, a little miscommunication. They thought it was a first down on the sideline. And then when it wasn't, they were in the huddle and things kind of uh, went awry for them there. But, again, credit Miami for what they did. I think they played with reckless abandon, which is what you're supposed to do as a lower-seeded team. Uh, couple, and like I said, couple that with Buffalo being on that emotional downswing. So I think that was their letdown. I think they come out and we see a much better, much more crisp uh, Buffalo team this coming week. Every strong team at some point faces a game that's a wake-up call. And you've got to kind of negotiate your way through the game. And I loved how Tony Romo was practically trying to will the Dolphins to doing the Jacksonville over the John Elway Broncos type upset. Uh, but that 
it did feel a little bit that way that Buffalo was just one more mistake from blowing the entire table right there. But I think with a wake up call kind of having to come back from, from that, from that low and they see what's in front of them. They did not get a finish the Cincinnati game last time they met. So there's a certain amount of unfinished business there. And then let's, let's go ahead and put Kansas city in that other position. So uh, they know what the road is going to be. And I think that helps bring them back as well. I'll go out a little bit out of order here and talk about the Bengals. Not a whole lot to talk about from that game. Uh, again, no starting quarterback for the Ravens. Lamar Jackson sitting that one out. That situation is a little bit interesting if we want to get into that in a minute. But the Bengals going to Buffalo to play this game, which, first of all, I'm not sure why this game didn't fall under the potential neutral site situation that they negotiated for an AFC Championship game, given that this was the matchup that had the most flip-flop implications with the Bengals-Bills' original game being canceled. But that's neither here nor there. I think that this is a big game for the Bengals. I think that they have a little bit of something to prove because it really felt like they were going to win that game. I know it was early. I know it was only 7-3. But the Bengals were playing really well at that point. The Bills had been slumping a little bit. And I think the Bengals want to go to Buffalo and say, we were going to beat you here before, and now we're going to do it again. Yeah, but I didn't like what I saw out of Cincinnati, even in that win over over Baltimore. And it's not even so much that it was a backup quarterback. Well, you can I think those it, it doesn't necessarily mean the whole thing because Tyler Huntley I think did a great job filling in for Lamar Jackson and he showed some some cracks in that defensive armor of the Cincinnati's defense and he was able to make plays in the passing game and save for that one goal line play which totally turned the game on it it was a 14 point swing yeah it was a 14 point swing so I, I was not impressed with Cincinnati and I don't think that I think on the flip side I think Buffalo says hey we want to go out and win this one for DeMar after what happened in this game of course I'm not saying that they're blaming T Higgins or anything like that or have any ill will towards him it's just to say it happened in that game against this opponent it means a lot these two teams will probably forever be linked because of what happened in that first matchup. And so I think Buffalo will also have a lot to prove and will want to come out and get a victory as well. I guess the question is, was this a wake-up call for the Cincinnati Bengals? Maybe less so than than what we saw for Buffalo because that was supposed to be a mismatch for Buffalo. This was not necessarily so much of a mismatch, although the kind of similarities with doing the backup quarterback and having to deal with that, but it just, it didn't feel like Cincinnati really was in sync all that much during the course of the game. Well, and it's a weird situation too. First of all, all of these AFC North games, JT is a Steelers fan, you know, they all tend to be kind of low scoring, a little bit weird. These teams know each other so, so well. There hasn't been a ton of turnover within the division personnel wise, over the last few years. And these teams also played each other a week ago. Yeah. So there's just a ton of weirdness going into that one. And so I, I kind of write it off a little bit. I, you know, you never expect a team to win a game in that division by 10 points. So I, I kind of, I kind of write it off a little bit since I did not play well. I did not think they looked especially great. They were definitely out of sync, but I think that given what we saw from them down the stretch, uh, when they are in sync, I think is, you know, really, really dangerous for anybody. Call it my shot. I think Buffalo does to Cincinnati what University of Georgia did to TCU. Maybe not to the same score deficit, but I think they come out and dominate Cincinnati. See, I'd be shocked. I think that if this is a blowout, I think it goes more Cincinnati's way. But 
I guess we'll see. I, I mean, the Bills are certainly capable of doing that if Cincinnati's not right. Like, the, the best and worst for these two teams. Obviously, there's a big ceiling and low floor there, as we've seen from both of them. But I guess we'll have to watch how it plays out. But I want to circle back around to the games that happened this past weekend. Giants got it done against the Vikings in the most predictable upset ever. We all knew the Vikings were frauds all year. But the, the, the Giants are frauds. Okay, <laughs> those so, teams so are here's, here's what I'll say. Okay, so if you look at advanced metrics, if we go by DVOA, the Vikings were like the sixth worst team in the league, and no team that ranked that low has ever made the playoffs in the history of the Super Bowl. The Giants started out very low. Their number is a little bit skewed by how poorly they started the year. They were kind of getting by while not playing very well. The back end of the season, the last six or seven games, they actually played extremely well. That defense really got going. Daniel Jones played extremely effectively, is not turning the ball over. I'm not saying that he's the next John Elway or anything like that, but there's there's a case to be made that he's a lower upside, higher floor Josh Allen. This, this sounds absurd. No, listen, hear me out. Hear me out. The peak of Josh Allen is way better than what Daniel Jones does. But when Josh Allen gets into the mode that he was this past week where he wants to throw downfield and he ends up turning the ball over and doing all this stuff that you wish he wouldn't do, Daniel Jones doesn't do that. He still runs. He had one of the best, like rushing and passing playoff games of all time this past week. Mind you, against a Vikings defense that we know is not very good. <laughs> but Daniel Jones does all of the stuff that you want a modern quarterback to do without turning the ball over. I'm not saying that he's on the same level as Allen and Mahomes and Burrow and some of these guys, but he's playing really, really respectable football right now, and I think he deserves some credit for it. A broken clock is right two times a day, right, Drew? Okay, so <laughs> he's been right like okay, but six here, of the last okay, eight weeks. No, but here's the thing. So we just saw one of the times that his broken clock was right. And Daniel Jones. And I love to dump, be a guy that dumps on, on Kirk Cousins as well. He's another one. That's, yeah. And so, he, <laughs> but he wasn't really the problem for Minnesota in this game. That defense, I think, really let no, them down. No, the defense was horrendous. The defense let them down. It wasn't Kirk Cousins. And, I, again, I, I would love to throw Kirk Cousins as someone I can definitely cast aside. But, no, Daniel Jones, it was a flash in the pan. Broken clock, right? This was one of the times that broken clock was right. I don't think this is something that he can sustain. He's the now he's this playoffs Kirk Cousins. I so I have not been a Daniel Jones believer. I laughed when the Giants drafted him when they took him. What was it, fifth overall a few years ago? I was laughing hysterically when it happened. And even coming into this year, was not a believer. Midway through the year, not a believer. But what he's done over the last several weeks, you give credit to Brian Dayball. You can give credit to the offensive coordinator, but he's doing it without great receivers. He's doing it with guys that we'd never heard of coming into the year and the Bills cast-offs with Isaiah Hodges, like guys who were cut from the roster late in the season. I mean, it's not like he's out there getting carried by a Calvin Johnson or something like that. Like, he's doing this within a system, yes, but also without top-end talent necessarily around him. That offensive line is not perfect, although it has been playing better. Saquon Barkley's been healthy, but not out of this world good for a lot of the season. And again, the receivers are nobodies. So I think that there there has to be some credit given to Daniel Jones that he can put up numbers like a top-10 quarterback, win games, doesn't turn the ball over, and it has them in a conference semifinal this weekend. I think if if this was like an episode of Scooby-Doo, we'll pull a mask off of, of uh, Daniel Jones and next week, and it'll be Mitch Trubisky. That's what it'll Ooh. be like. 
right. I think that's a little unfair. A <laughs> little unfair to Daniel Jones, given that I didn't see Mitch Trubisky throw or run all season for as many yards as I think he put up in that game. But, again, another one where I guess we'll see. I, I just think that – we have to give him a little bit more respect than we have been because things obviously have been bad. It's been pretty laughable with Daniel Jones for the last couple of years in the Giants, but I think that they're actually onto something uh, with what they have here. Uh, Want to talk about the other Florida team real quick. We're running out of time a little bit, but we have to talk about the Buccaneers. Uh, we're recording this Tuesday morning, so obviously Monday night was their, frankly, embarrassing loss to the Dallas Cowboys. And you know, if the Buccaneers had done anything to make that a competitive game, the Cowboys would be the embarrassed side right now, missing four extra points, which we can get to in a moment. But that could be Tom Brady's last game as a Buccaneer. I doubt it'll be Tom Brady's last game ever in the NFL, but that's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. He certainly sounded like at his at the end of his press conference, like he was closing the door and tying up all the loose ends with the Tampa Bay media and, and fan base and all of that. I don't expect him to return to Tampa. I expect him to be on a West Coast team. I agree. This wasn't Tom Brady's last NFL game. He still showed that he can get it done at a decent enough level. I mean, he made some throws that even Daniel Jones could the great Daniel Jones couldn't even make. Uh, <laughs> no, but Tom see, Brady, Daniel Jones. Yeah, okay, I mean, I'll... but no, he he made some great throws even at his age. You still see that he's the arm is live enough. I mean, obviously he can pick apart a defense probably better than anyone in NFL history. Uh, so it's just a matter of him getting in the right situation. I think someone with a running game, someone with a best, some better weapons. I mean, which is kind of hard to say because you think of uh, what they have in Julio Jones and Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. But I think just in terms of schematically somewhere, I think that fits better. Uh, like you said, a West Coast team, maybe one out in Sin City. Potentially so, with better receivers and a, a solid Adams running and game. D- and Darren Waller and Josh Jacobs. Josh exactly. Jacobs, well, yeah. Well, the, the question is, does he want to reunite with the other Josh that's out in Las Vegas, Josh McDaniels, because we know that that was not always the best relationship when the two of them were in New England together. Well, and I guess the wild card is still, you can't count it out, although they you know, there could very well be the Super Bowl team out of the NFC, but... The San Francisco 49ers are not exactly settled at quarterback right now. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a real interesting situation. I, it's weird to talk about them. You know, they had the most dominant playoff win of the weekend, pretty much, as they kind of roundhouse the Seahawks, especially in that second half. But coming into the year with Brock Purdy and Trey Lance, I'm not sure what you do with either of those guys. Because maybe the Brock Purdy thing's sustainable, maybe it's not. But we also haven't seen Trey Lance, who you invested all of this draft capital to get. And we still have no idea what he is. We didn't know coming in because he hadn't really played in college. There was supposed to be all this athletic upside. And then he comes in this year. He's supposed to be the starter, gets hurt. So we still don't know. Right. And I don't know what the value is for him on the trade market. If they were to try to move him to bring in a Tom Brady, obviously, you know, you can shop those two guys if you're trying to get Tom in the building. But yeah, I'm not totally sure what happens. It's a great situation for Tom Brady. We, I, there's so much for him to work with there. We saw what they were able to do. Um, I mean, it was fully evident in that game that Kyle Shanahan with that amount of talent on an offense is just unfair. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) the the stuff that he was doing with Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle being so involved, and then Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk, who one are both great blockers, which is a hugely important thing Mm -hmm. for Kyle Shanahan offense to get your, your tight ends and your receivers involved in the blocking game. But 
just the way he's able to deploy all of these guys. He used Christian McCaffrey as an inline tight end at one point to pick up a first down. I mean, it's just you have no idea where to look at any given moment, and all of those guys can hurt you. And he's moving them around and, like I said, deploying them in different ways. And, Jeff, you mentioned that they might be the NFC representative in the Super Bowl. And right now it's hard to say otherwise with how good they've looked. Absolutely. They've now won 11 consecutive games. Um, There's only a dozen other teams that have ever gone this far in a playoffs and having taken a a double-digit win streak into the playoffs. Now, the interesting thing is only three of them actually made it to the Super Bowl. But uh, just I think with the way that the rest of the conference sets up, San Francisco takes a lot of momentum in. And and let's give some credit to Brock Purdy, who sat and waited his turn. And he was Mr. Irrelevant, and now he's Mr. Playoff quarterback. Uh, and, And his numbers looked really, really good. But I've always said that to make an offense work, it's like a three-legged stool. System, coach, quarterback. And nobody would have thought, nobody knew really what to expect out of Brock Purdy necessarily because he was supposed to be the third quarterback behind Garoppolo and Trey Lance. And yet he's been able to step in and practically not miss a beat. And that, I mean, for a guy that was literally the last pick of the draft, that's just amazing. It is. It kind of is reminiscent of uh, what Stetson Bennett did at second University of Georgia reference in this podcast. But Stetson Bennett did the same thing for the Bulldogs. And so you kind of see this where this guy comes in and can just really become a provide a jolt to an offense. And we saw that with Brock Purdy as someone who can move around, extend plays a bit, make good throws, make good decisions, and just really put the ball in the hands of those people around him. Like you said, with Coach Shanahan scheming it up. To spin it forward, I don't think you have to go after a Tom Brady because you have so many other options there. That's fair. But at the same time, there might be that thinking that, look at all of these weapons. If we can bring in the best quarterback of all time to make make it all gel even just a little bit better, plus he gets to go home, there's all of that as well. How long before the bubble bursts on Brock Purdy? How long before the bubble bursts on Trey Lance, if it hasn't already? What does Jimmy Garoppolo really have? You kind of know what you have in Tom Brady, except possibly for when Father Time is going to catch up with him. Yeah, it's it's kind of a question of, you know, how much more can you elevate the offense by putting Tom Brady in there? Because, yes, he's great at making the sort of reads that you want the quarterback to make from the pocket in this offense. You want him to be able to fit it into tight windows. You want him to be able to make the best decision. You want him to be able to make all the short and intermediate throws that kind of make this thing hum. But also, I think that Brock Purdy's mobility is important and right that's now. Fair. And that's something that Tom Brady doesn't didn't ever really have and definitely doesn't have right now. He's a little bit afraid of getting hit, but also when you look at the cost of putting Tom Brady into that offense versus keeping Purdy at his price tag, and then you know you have to figure out what you're doing with Lance and Garoppolo's contracts as well. But Brock Purdy would make a great understudy for Tom Brady. He would make a great understudy for Tom Brady, <laughs> but putting Tom Brady in you know, puts you in a a difficult cap situation where you have to, you're going to have to lose something from that defense, something from that offense. And I think that right now they're kind of at a great point where they're getting more from a guy that was, that's playing on a seventh round contract than you would expect. And that's allowed them to do things like acquire Christian McCaffrey and re-sign guys like Joey Bosa on the defense and and allow them to, 
yes, I'm sorry, Nick Bosa on the defense. My bad. So it's uh, you know, there's there's some cost benefit analysis to consider with that. And the other thing to consider with Tom Brady cycling back to the point that started us here and where he's going to go is there have been rumors forever that he and Sean Payton have been trying to link up for some time now. Right, and I, I think if you to spin it back to uh, San Francisco. Anywhere that Tom Brady goes becomes a Tom, the Tom Brady system. It's no longer that is the true. Kyle Shanahan system. Is now we're going to run the Tom Brady offense, and that's whatever he's most comfortable with doing. And I'm not sure that's going to truly benefit uh, the weapons that they have. I mean, because we kind of saw it when uh, New England loaded up and they got Randy Moss, put up great numbers, didn't win the big one. Shouts to Eli Manning. And you could also maybe say that as well, because the year that Tampa did win the Super Bowl was Bruce Arians' year as coach. And so uh, it's you do have a very good point in that everything is going to be built around Brady, just as like, you know, certain basketball teams are built around their stars and you have to move pieces in and out to make that work. So where does... Sean Payton land. So this is this is the interesting thing. I think the Chargers have to be the favorite. As of this moment, as of this recording, Brandon Staley is still employed by the Spanos family and the Los Angeles Chargers. But I think that's the one that makes the most sense. If you're Sean Payton, you're coming in with a set of requirements. And that is either that a couple of things like a quarterback and a decent GM are in place or that he's going to be able to make the move to work with a GM that he wants to work with and obtain a quarterback. And I think that the Texans are the only one that he would consider that might be playing with a rookie because they're going to have that that top pick to maybe get Bryce Young if he's interested in that. But I think the Chargers absolutely make the most sense. Justin Herbert's there. We know he has all the talent in the world. That roster is so loaded and massively underachieved, and he's already in Los Angeles. From some of the stuff that I've read from people who work with him at Fox, it seems like he's very happy in L.A., doesn't really want to leave there, was maybe hoping that one of those two jobs would open up out there. It looked like both of them might have been possibilities for a minute. So I think that the Chargers are the best-case scenario for him. I think that the Cowboys winning last night was bad for him because I think that that would have been his other top choice with his history with Dallas. But I think the Chargers are the best place for him to go. Just as a fan of football, I think that's where I would most like to see him go to see what a coach with his offensive mind could do with all that talent and that quarterback. But, you know, it's there's a couple other things that go into it as well. What are teams going to give up to the Saints because he's still under contract? So what kind of compensation are they willing to give to New Orleans to be able to sign him? And then they have to negotiate that deal with them as well. He's I mean, he basically has his choice. There are enough openings and enough teams interested that he can kind of pick and choose where he goes. And at least two teams, according to reports, have already settled on what the compensation mm-hmm. will be with the Saints, that being the Broncos and the Cardinals. And the Texans might actually be in that mix as well. But uh, I guess you have to fire a coach before you can start right. negotiating the other parts <laughs> of it. Oh, i just been uh, called up. i got to go kick for the Dallas Cowboys next week. <laughs> So I don't think if I have to, I got to see how the schedule is going to work out. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to join the podcast next week because I'll be in Dallas kicking. Got to go. All right. Well, we'll wrap this segment up so that so that JT can get out of here. Good luck. Uh, good Warm luck. Warm up that leg. You know, if, if it's a straight head-to-head competition with Brett Maher, you actually might be in trouble. He's one of the better kickers over the last six years. We didn't get a chance to – I didn't get to do my Brett Maher defense here. But go look, go look at his stats for the last four years. <laughs> 
I think his job's okay since they won, but we'll see. Anyway, like I said, we'll wrap it up there. We'll come back in just a minute, and Jeff and I will talk some golf right after this. With 24 first-place decorations in the 2019 Florida Press Club Awards, the Village's Daily Sun brings first-class journalism to the nation's fastest-growing community every day. Stay informed with the nation's fastest-growing newspaper. Subscribe to The Daily Sun by calling 352-753-1119. It's been a while, but we're going to get back to talking about some golf. Jeff Shane and I, first time in the studio together in, I think, a month. <laughs> Maybe I think a month you're change, right. Actually, uh, just occurred to me. But uh, finally got the, the golf clubs going again out there on the PGA and LPGA tours, and we're excited to be able to talk about those. Uh, we're going to talk about the last couple weeks as the, the year's really kind of gotten underway, a couple of big names up at the top of some leaderboards. I want to start with two weeks ago. We had the Tournament of Champions, John Rahm, a familiar name, of course, getting back out there and winning again. I think that we all thought he might have been a little bit disappointed in this past calendar year coming off of the season that he had in 2020-2021. I think that he may have been, uh, felt that he underperformed a little bit just in terms of the total wins and everything like that. So uh, I think that he could be at least hoping for another big season here, and this is a good way to start it out. It was, and actually if you want to go back to the end of last year, it was after the FedEx Cup PGA Tour calendar but John Rahm then went across the pond to play on the DP World Tour won his home tournament in Spain the Open Day España and then he won the finale at Dubai and now he comes back to the PGA Tour and wins the calendar year opener in Hawaii so he's got three wins in his last six starts so it's not going to take him very long I think I was kind of surprised, actually, that Rory McIlroy still holds the number one ranking because John Rahm has to be breathing down his neck. Right, and that's the thing. I think that Rory's performance on the DP World Tour kind of overshadowed a little bit of what John Rahm did. But you're right. He did have a great closeout to the year. Now, mind you, he did get a little bit of help in winning at Kapalua this past week. Colin Morikawa had a pretty big lead, six-shot lead, heading into uh, the final, what was it? into the final round, just into Sunday, uh, and then just completely fell apart there. He did, and uh, it's one of those things, you don't see it necessarily with six shots, but, you know, three shots, four shots. It doesn't take much if you stumble on a couple of holes and you have somebody breathing down your neck who is making birdies. The turnaround can be very quick, and we saw that happen about as fast as you can with Rom and Morikawa. Rom actually began the day seven shots behind Morikawa. He was not in second place, but then Rom comes out and makes a few early birdies, closes that gap. They make the turn to the back nine, and Rom finishes up with four birdies and an eagle in his last six holes. Meanwhile, Morikawa, who was still kind of comfortable with it heading to the back nine, just poor wedge play. On number 14, he uh, hits a shot from the bunker that skitters all the way across the green off the other side. He chunked a chip out of the rough at 15 or 16, uh, hit a poor chip shot at, at the other one of those holes, 15 or 16. All of a sudden, he's on the bogey train. Here comes John Rahm making birdies left and right, and all of a sudden, it was a very quick turn and, and all of a sudden Morikawa falls behind John Rahm and it 
happened so fast. And I think that's probably what you heard from Morikawa at the end is it didn't take very long. It took an hour. It took a span of three or four holes to do it. And uh, unfortunately, it's ties a PGA Tour record. He's now sitting there with Greg Norman at the Masters and DJ at uh, Shanghai. And I think he's the seventh, sixth or seventh guy on the PGA Tour in history to blow a six-shot lead on the final round. So that hurts. What may hurt a little bit as well is that it's the second time that this has happened to Colin Morikawa in the past 13 months. Because if you go back to the Hero World Challenge, not last month, but a year plus last month, he blew a big league. I think that was five shots on the final day, and Victor Hovland came up and won that. So this is a little disconcerting for a guy that we thought was a very solid player in his two major wins, and now all of a sudden there's a little bit of crack in the armor. Yeah, I think of this as a non-characteristic performance. Like This is somewhat unusual, especially though for it to, to collapse in that short and mid-range game where I consider him to be such a precise player. We've seen him do great work from the bunkers and in that within a 120 yards span, like some of the things that he's done are among the best in the world. And he is one of the best in the world, I think because of how good he is inside that range. So is, has he been doing any kind of swing change or working on anything this year? He or did is, change he, coaches. Okay. He did change coaches uh, or, or it got, got some outside help. Maybe that was more of the, uh, more of the term. Uh, and so did, did enter January with a few things to work on. And so maybe you don't trust it as much. And obviously when one goes wrong, then all of a sudden the mental game kicks in and it's like, well, Do I need to compensate? Do I need to trust this? How much do I trust this? Trust is such a big factor. And uh, so maybe that has a little bit to do with it as well. Well, hopefully just a one-off here for Colin Morikawa. Certainly uh, like to see him playing well. Uh, We also had an event this past weekend, Siwoo Kim winning the Sony Open. He also had to come from behind to do so. It didn't take uh, necessarily as big of a collapse Uh, from his opponent, but he did uh, come from off the pace there in the final round to win at Sony. And he was well off the pace midway through uh, and then wound up having to shoot 64-64 to win it. And the Sunday 64 allowed him to overtake Hayden Buckley. uh, And that was a, uh, that was a duel down the stretch where Buckley didn't necessarily hand it to Siwoo Kim. In fact, Buckley makes an what we thought was going to be a really clutch birdie on 16 to kind of help solidify his position. And Siwoo Kim is off the green at 17 and chips in from 28 feet. And then uh, it's a par five at 18. And uh, so Siwoo Kim goes eagle birdie to finish off that 64. And that was just enough to beat Hayden Buckley across the line. And uh, Siwoo Kim, we've seen him for a while now. He thinks he's an underachiever. There there have been a lot of close finishes where he's been second, third, top five, top 10. And, and he said uh, yesterday or on Sunday that he thought thinks he should have done more. But now he does have his fourth PGA Tour victory. It's his first in two years, almost, 
And uh, maybe this is a sign of good things to come for Si Wu as he uh, embarks on the rest of the 2023 calendar. Yeah, Hayden Buckley, meanwhile, going to have to keep waiting for that first career win. Uh, it's Jeff, tough. Yeah, yeah it, <laughs> it sure is. Uh, what are we getting into with the LPGA this week? I believe we're getting a little bit local. It is the season opener, and it is the traditional season opener in the Orlando area. And now it's been at Lake Nona. This will be its second year, but the Hilton Garden Vacations... But the Hilton Grand Vacations Tournament of Champions tees off this week. It's that pro-am format, pro-celebrity that uh, we have saw first out at uh, the Diamond Resorts. And now the Diamond is under the Hilton umbrella. They not only changed names, but they've changed venues out at Lake Nona. Danielle Kang won it in some bitter cold on Sunday last year. But uh, we have... Uh, Kang back to defend her title. Nellie Korda uh, will probably be uh, front and center. Not only is she uh, on the verge or challenging once again for that number one world ranking, but uh, uh, she also has uh, signed a new equipment deal uh, with Nike. Not not for equipment, but for apparel. But then uh, the question is, is does the tailor-made affiliation go along with that? So she's uh, making some good uh, good bucks out of uh, her new deal. And then Brooke Henderson will also be here. A couple of interesting names that are missing, the first of which is Lydia Ko, who actually lives at Lake Nona. Right. I'm not sure she's at Lake Nona right now because she just got married. She may still be on her honeymoon. So she is sitting this one out. And then uh, we usually expect Lexi Thompson to be at this. But Lexi is going through a dry spell where she just hasn't won. And it is a tournament of champions. And you have to win in the last two years to get into this field. And so she is excluded this year. But uh, Pro-Am format, Derek Lowe, the former Red Sox pitcher, is the defending champion. Uh, John Smoltz has won it a couple of times. We'll see Emmett Smith, Roger Clemens. Larry Fitzgerald, Marty Fish, a lot of those names that we've come accustomed to seeing at this event. And uh, it's kind of a cool event because it's golf, but we also get to see some of our favorite athletes from other sports see how well they can really do at golf. Yeah, that's always fun. And if that doesn't do it for you, we do have a pretty good, actually, PGA event this weekend as well. Yeah, the American Express, which is the old, I still call it the Bob Hope Classic. I'm one of those guys that will probably forever think about it as the Bob Hope Classic, but it's out in Palm Springs, Palm Desert. And uh, it had fallen, really, on some hard times in... The placement of the schedule, you've got a lot of players that may have played both weeks in Hawaii or wanted to get the year started off in Hawaii, and you don't want to jump into playing again after such a long flight. So there had been some years where it had really struggled, but thanks to a couple of Southern California kids who are now in the top 10 in the world rankings. That has helped the field. Patrick Cantley and Xander Schauffele will be favorites in more than one sense as uh, they go out to the desert. And then Scotty Scheffler is in the field. Tony Finau, Sam Burns, Rookie of the Year, Cameron Young. So after really a, a stretch of five, six, seven years where this had been one of the weaker fields on the PGA Tour schedule. Uh, this one is really good. 10 of the top 20 players in the world will be playing in the desert this week. A pretty good week for golf all around. Hopefully 
you'll get to enjoy some of it, and we'll be talking about it again next week, I'm sure. So well, we're going to take a quick break, though, and we're going to wrap up today talking about college football when Cody Hills joins us in just a moment. From high school heroes to softball to the latest on the Village's fairways, the Daily Sun brings you the best in local sports. Stay informed with the nation's fastest-growing newspaper in the nation's fastest-growing community. Subscribe to the Village's Daily Sun by calling 352-753-1119. Wrapping up today, talking about some college football. Obviously, we talked NFL in the first segment, but usual crew of Jeff Shane and Cody Hills in here with me now as we're going to put a bow on the college football season. We weren't here to talk about it last week, so we're not going to really get too much into just the college football championship game. But I do want to talk a little bit about Georgia. Obviously, another great showing for them, great finish to another great season. And guys, I think that the word dynasty now has to come into play. Anytime you win back-to-back titles in a sport, you get to be part of that conversation. Do we think that Georgia is now building the next college football dynasty? I think that they are certainly the team that everybody is going to emulate that they're going to uh, put as the gold standard for this particular era. As you said, it's difficult to repeat, especially at the college level. I think you can, you can get dynasties more on a professional level where you're only dealing with leagues of 32 and half of those are not any good, but at the college level, it's, it's different. We've had, a decade now, close to a decade since the last back-to-back champions, that was Alabama. And Alabama was obviously the gold standard of the last decade. And before that, USC in that brief run was the gold standard of the decade previous. So I think Georgia is the gold standard for at least what we have now. They're certainly at or among the top three in the recruiting rankings, everybody seems to want to go play for Kirby Smart. So it's going to be really difficult, I think, to just rule Georgia out from at least being in the mix once again at this time next year. Yeah, I, I agree with you, too. And I just quickly, too, just uh, a quick mention of, you know, the tragedy that they went through this week, losing Devin Willock, you know, starting guard to an accident, a recruiting staffer and a couple others injured. Just I think it's probably going to really regrettably cut that celebration short or it has cut that short this week. I mean, they should be having a lot happier times right now in Athens than they are. So just quick thoughts with them. But yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, I I think the discussion point will be, are they with Alabama quite yet? Um, I think that you can definitely say they are with Alabama. I don't know if they've surpassed Alabama just because I think Georgia's doing it in a way that even though Kirby Smart comes from that same, you know, that Alabama tree, that cloth of, of Saban, but I, I think they're almost kind of building it sort of like the way Clemson has kind of built their dynasty. It just feels a little bit more similar to that. But yeah, I think they're right there. How can, how can you not say they are? I mean, you know, because I think this year they got even better. And if we, if there were questions of whether last year was a flash in the pan and now what they did this year, you know, they, they won the SEC title this year, which they didn't do a year ago, and they went unbeaten this year, which they didn't do a year ago. So they only got better. I honestly think they're maybe only getting started under Kirby Smart. Like Jeff said, the recruit, if you look at the recruiting rankings in the last seven years, I mean, in terms of just joining that, that upper tier of recruiting across the country, I mean, Georgia's there now, and, and they were maybe a little bit a step behind you know, Alabama. Now they're right there with you know, Ohio State, Alabama. I mean, so to me, yeah, I think they are up there. I think what we saw out of them – just because I think they're going to reload too. I think yeah. they're at the point now where it's not a rebuilding cycle. It's not kind of where they were, even at the end of the Mark Richt years, or even sort of 
even you know even at the start of Kirby Smart's tenure where you had good seasons and you know, I'm thinking of the year that Aaron Murray left and and you know you start thinking about well they needed a time to reload or rebuild I don't think they have to do that anymore I think it's reloading I, I think we saw sort of them have the ability all year we talked about that uh, on an earlier episode how they had different ways to win different games and I think that's a sign of a really sound program that they don't have to be so one-dimensional in the way that they win games and operate week to week so yeah I'm on board with Jeff I I think that it's now a very fluid dynasty-like program that they've got in Athens Georgia I guess the x factor though is Stetson Bennett has used up his eligibility and all football teams operate around their quarterback. So that probably is the biggest question mark that we will see out of Georgia. I mean, you're right. They're going to reload on defense. They're going to be, you know, those scrappy, tough dogs that uh, we've come to see in the last couple of years. But uh, somebody has to make that offense run. You can't just hand the ball off to McIntosh. You just, you got to get the ball to Brock Bowers, but who does it? But that will be probably the biggest factor of whether Georgia can actually make a serious run at a three-peat. Yeah, we saw a brief glimpse. I think Carson Beck played the majority of that fourth quarter in relief of Stetson Bennett um, in the national title game a few Mondays ago. I like Jeff's points about the defense and reloading because, I mean, they're going to lose Keely Ringo. They're going to lose Jalen Smith. I mean, they're going to lose guys that have been kind of the mainstay the last two years that's got this thing going for them defensively. But I don't think there's any argument that if there's any coach to rebuild a defense that you'd rather have than Kirby Smart. I mean, he's the guy, I, right. I think, in terms of turning over a defense and getting him back to an elite level again. So, yeah, I think Carson Beck, what they do with him, if he's the answer at quarterback for them moving forward, I would think he is. But yeah, they got to have someone to keep the offense going. The defense is going to be there, but we've kind of discovered here in the last, you know, with LSU winning it a few years ago, the way Alabama's done it, defense has to be sound. But we found out the way to win this thing here, the way that these – juggernaut teams have evolved in college football you've got to score points you've got to be able to put 40 or 50 up on any given moment and uh, they were able to do that with Stetson Bennett sort of came into his own and his fun little journey and uh, for it to come to an end the way it did was was great for him but they've got to turn it over and figure out a way to do that and we'll see if Carson Beck's the answer well and I think that there's some sustainability here coming into this year I remember we talked before the season one of my big concerns was losing all of that talent from last year's team all of the guys that went in that 2022 NFL draft from Georgia how big of a hit were they going to take especially on the defensive side and they came back out this year and like Cody said they may have been even better so I think that they've gotten to a point with these recruiting classes with the good coaching that they can continually just continuously build this program like Cody said it's not a rebuild it's a reload and again assuming that that quarterback piece is in place which a team like Georgia shouldn't have trouble recruiting a quarterback one great talent in the state they have to be the biggest recruiters out of Georgia right now I would have to imagine I haven't looked at those state-by-state numbers but have to think that it's pretty easy to get guys to want to come play for you when you're bringing home titles in back-to-back seasons. So I think that they probably won't have too much of a problem getting somebody in there who can at least play a, a, a competent quarterback position. Now, mind you, whether or not that's good enough to continue holding off Alabama or some of these other SEC teams remains to be seen. But yeah, Georgia in a pretty good spot right now. It's an interesting situation, too, when you look at everybody else in that SEC East. It used to be that the SEC West teams had to worry about Alabama, and so Texas A&M and LSU were fighting this uphill battle. But now, if you're Florida, now if you are Kentucky, which has had a great run, but all of a sudden they lose their quarterback, Will Levis, and yet how did... 
How do you knock off Georgia? Tennessee. Tennessee, you know, same thing. The great surge that we saw from Tennessee, but they've still got that one hurdle now that, uh, you know, is the obvious uh, big dog. Yeah. No pun intended. It does feel, yeah, it does feel a little bit like Georgia is kind of occupying that Alabama position is good as Alabama was this year and certainly not saying that they've disappeared, but this is two years in a row that Georgia's gotten the better of them. They're starting to show a little bit of weakness. Like Cody said, we don't necessarily want to say that Georgia's overtaken Alabama, but do we think that Alabama is starting to slip a little bit at the risk of ending up on a bulletin board somewhere in Tuscaloosa? I'm not trying to to give Coach Saban more fuel for uh, for his rants to his team about how nobody appreciates them, but have they dipped a little bit in the last couple of years and have teams kind of caught up a little bit now? And do we think that Alabama can get back to kind of dominating the conversation, not just in the SEC West, not just in the conference overall, but nationally being that team again. I mean, I think if there's any team built to do it, it's Alabama. But it's going to be interesting because I think this year, granted, they were two final plays losses away from getting to the playoff as it was. But, you know, this is kind of the most undisciplined or or kind of just sloppy Crimson Tide group we've seen in a while. I think they had some gaps exposed, especially the defensive backfield. Um, Their offensive line wasn't nearly as good, and it made, I think, Bryce Young, I think maybe if we look back in a few years, we're going to be like, man, Bryce Young is really good considering how much he had to sort of just make happen on his own um, and and sort of in some really tough situations and scramble. But, yeah, we're going to see. You know, I, I think one sign of the times for Alabama kind of realizing, or maybe Nick Saban realizing where they are, is how aggressive they've been in the transfer portal this offseason um, and, and how aggressive they've been just overall recruiting. Um, and they flipped several major top targets, particularly a couple in the offensive line. Um, so I, I, I think there's signs that I don't know if – you know, Saban, you know, the word's never going to get out if he's panicking or if he feels pressure or, you know, if he feels like he has to step it up. But I just choose to believe that the guy he is and how how he looks for any bit of motivational fuel to kind of fire himself up and fire his program up. I think watching what's going on in that other SEC division and seeing what Georgia's doing and hearing people like us talk about, has Georgia pulled even with Alabama? Have they surpassed Alabama? I think it's going to do something for Alabama. Now, the question is, does Alabama do something about it? Does Nick Saban do something about it? it remains to be seen. You know, I, I do think, you know, replacing Bryce Young is going to be a huge deal. What they got out of what they got out of Milrow in the backup spot was not very good. He had some issues with ball security. So, I mean, they certainly have pieces, the quarterback position, you know, receivers are going to have to fill some of those gaps, offensive line, defensive backfield. That's four position groups, and we don't usually talk about Alabama needing help at four position groups often. Everything runs in cycles, even if you are Alabama. But I'm with you, Cody. I think that Nick Saban looks at what's going on across that border and says, okay, challenge accepted. Uh, and sometimes, you know, every every dynasty, you know, hits a flat spot, a little complacency. We're, we are Alabama. We are, you know, name a team. And... You have to knock us off. Well, now somebody has. Now it's time to redouble your efforts and accept the challenge and see if you can go take it on. I want to talk just for a moment about the team that Georgia beat in the national championship game, TCU, because I think that they're sort of in an opposite position of Georgia. I don't think this is something that's sustainable for the Frogs. For starters, it seems that they massively overachieved. We've talked a lot about where they were ranked before the season, how a lot of Pundits picked them to be, you know, middle of the pack or even seventh, eighth in the Big Twelve 
this year. But I think that this is an interesting situation, not just for TCU, but for the Big 12 as a whole, because they've obviously had you know better luck getting into the playoff than some other conferences, the Pac-12. Yes. But with Texas and Oklahoma only having one year left in the conference before they bolt to the SEC, what kind of happens you know, to TCU and the Big 12 here? Do we see this kind of rotating door? Because TCU is only the, the second team from the Big 12 to make it. Oklahoma, uh, I believe, was in two other college playoffs, uh, college football playoffs prior to this year. But uh, we haven't seen a consistent representative from them, and I think that that is kind of hurting the conference, both within the national conversation uh, with concerns right now about realignment and stuff like that, making your conference more attractive. You know, I think that this is a somewhat bigger problem right now for the Big 12. I think it is, and yet it depends on how you look at it. It is it is a problem from the outside, but if you are TCU, if you are Baylor, if you are Oklahoma State, Kansas State, or maybe one of these incoming programs like UCF or Cincinnati, you see a void and you say, why not us? Maybe we can be the team that puts together the talent level that can win championships year after year. And especially with the expanded playoff that's coming in, you don't have to crack for, you just need to win your conference or tie for the conference title, get one of those at large spots, and then you'll be in to perhaps do a little bit of damage. But the, the door is open if TCU can build on this Cinderella story that they had. Uh, they certainly have a chance. Baylor and Kansas State were awfully close to where TCU was, so the leap won't be very far for them. We'll take UCF. You still have a great talent pool to draw from in the state of Florida, just like those other two do in the state of Texas. UCF potentially, hard to say, but potentially could put themselves in the mix. If you're a coach in the Big 12, I think you see it as opportunity, while everybody else, you and me in the outside world, sees it as a weakness right now. Yeah, I agree. I think it's sort of the beauty in the eye of the beholder type deal. I mean, you can either say that the Big 12 is weak because – they don't have some Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson, some sort of perennial power that's going to jump up and grab national headlines. Or you look at it like, well, there must be have some competitive balance. It must be really good football. You know, they, you never know who's going to win. It's even and wide open. Um, I guess I'll start with TCU. I mean, I don't know how TCU replicates what they're going to do. I thought a lot of the credit, I mean, Sonny Dykes, obviously what he did coming from SMU and sort of revitalizing them was great, but I thought a lot of the credit – and a lot of credit for Max Dugan's rise was Garrett Riley, the offensive yes. coordinator, who now bolts to Clemson and makes them, I think, infinitely better um, and, and a CFP contender for, for next year. But, you know, looking at how they're going to have to replace Max Dugan and, and we, you know, you talk about you don't just lose a Heisman finalist. Usually most teams, I mean, maybe if you're one of those perennial powers, you can lose one and recycle and get back up again. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like Jeff. I think it's wide open. That's what I feel. I, I feel like it's anybody's ball game in that big 12. Now this kind of feels gross to say, but I almost think Texas is probably the favorite next year with all they have coming back. Um, they had a really tough schedule and you know, I saw a stat over the weekend that, you know, they were within one possession in the fourth quarter of all five of their losses this year. Texas was, so they're right there. They've got to figure out the quarterback situation, whether it's Quinn Ewers or Arch Manning jumps in. But once they do, once they do that, whoever they decide on is going to have a ton of talent behind them. The schedule's more manageable, home home and away wise this year. So I, I kind of feel like it's 
I don't want to say Texas is back, but I think they're the leader. They'd better be because they only have one more year at this. Right, yeah. And, you know, I think we've also measured the Big 12 strength over the years as Texas and Oklahoma. Texas has been down. Oklahoma was really bad at times this year with as much transition and fluidity that they have. You know, I would be surprised if they can crack 500 again next year. So, yeah, I think it's going to be tough for TCU to rebuild. I think Texas is probably your favorite. But, yeah, like Jeff said, I mean, there's no reason that someone like a Baylor, you know, even a surprise team like a Kansas State or, you know, I wouldn't be surprised even if Iowa State, you know, if Matt Campbell can get those guys going again and he hit the transfer portal hard. I think it's open, wide open. And, again, it's do you think that's fun? Do you think that's competitive balance? Or do you think, well, they're just really using a gap year to get to the next year where they're going to have a little bit more horses in the, in the group? So we'll see. Well, I think that's a, a good time to ask – Across college football, is there a team that either of you kind of expect to make a leap next year that could be part of the conversation that maybe weren't talked about because either they didn't start as well as they could have or came on a little bit late or their situation is a little bit different next year? Well, I'll stay in the backyard, so to speak. I think Florida State made obviously a ton of improvement this year, finally getting back to double-digit wins. And yet you look at all of these players that are coming back for one more year with the Seminoles. You, you start with Jordan Travis at quarterback, and he was the guy that eventually made everything go. But you look at Jared Verse on the defensive side. You look at the stable of running backs. All of these guys had a potential to capitalize on FSU's success. And yet somehow Mike Norvell and the culture that he has established in Tallahassee has convinced so many of these guys to come back. It's still going to be a leap to get to the Clemson level. But I think Florida State now can actually say without squinting too much that we can challenge Clemson for that level and see what happens when those two teams meet. I don't know where it's in Tallahassee or or Clemson next year, but they can go in and make that a competitive winner-take-all type game. For me, it's going to be Penn State. I would have piggybacked on Florida State, too. I really like that pick. I think uh, what Norvell is doing, and and like Jeff said, there's guys who are bought in to having another year in Tallahassee, and I think anytime you have that, that's something I think is just a good barometer of the culture that he's built there, that the guys are willing to jump in there. But yeah, I like Penn State, even with losing Sean Clifford going to next year. I mean, they're really excited, you know, what they've got with Drew, uh, Drew Aller, one of the top, you know, top pocket passer recruiting uh uh, nuggets out there that, that James Franklin and his staff found. Um, we saw a really good performance out of them in the Rose Bowl. Um, and I just think with, you know, what we saw out of Nick Singleton in the running back position, I looked at, look up their schedule real quick. You know, next year, I mean, they're going to get Ohio State at home. They're going to get Iowa at home. They're going to get a couple. Uh, they're going to get Michigan at home. I mean, they've got some pretty game, uh, pretty big games next year in Beaver Stadium. The schedule's more manageable. I think they have 18 ret- or 17 returning starters, both specialists coming back. I think it sets up for them after a couple of down years or mediocre years by Penn State standards under James Franklin. I think they can compete not only in the Big Ten East for or for the Big Ten East title with Michigan and Ohio State, but I think they also take a leap and push for CFP um, possibilities next year coming out of coming out of Happy Valley. So I like Penn State. I like what they have building. I like what James Franklin's done. I like that there's a little bit of sort of this. Um, Sort of this, we've sort of sat by and watched Michigan and Ohio State the last five, seven years, and now it's sort of our time. A really big win for them in the Rose Bowl against Utah, Um, and uh, I kind of like the momentum that might be generated from that going forward for them. One team I just want to mention real quickly is LSU. I think that they 
started to come on really strong towards the end of the year. Obviously, getting the win over Alabama, I think, was big for them. Talking to some folks out in Baton Rouge, the sense that they get is that they kind of smell blood in the water, that this is a chance for them to kind of pounce. Obviously, it was the first year out there for Brian Kelly, who's been a great recruiter everywhere he's been, been a really solid coach. So I think that that program, you know, when they have the resources and they have the coaching and that team is is going well, that's a place that good players want to play. And so if we could get to a sustained uh, level of greatness for LSU, I think that that's something that Brian Kelly's building towards. But I think that next year, especially with the way that we saw them improve the back half of this past season, I think that they'll be really dangerous next year. I think they'll get a little bit of respect at the beginning of the year. And then obviously it's going to come down to what are they able to do in that SEC and the SEC West. You have to get by Bama. You're going to have to get by Georgia. But uh, I think that LSU is poised to to be a real strong contender next year. How is Brian Kelly's accent these days? <laughs> I think he dropped it a little bit as the season went on. I think he, I think he came on a little bit too strong there with the, the almost Cajun um, put on there. But... Uh, always good to talk to you guys, though. I appreciate you being in here with me. Appreciate everyone for listening. That's going to do it for us this week. If you're listening to us on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, please like us, rate us, review us, subscribe, all that good stuff we got to ask you to do. But uh, we do do really appreciate you spending time out of your week to, to listen to the things that we have to say. So hopefully you'll do it again next week. I want to say thank you again to Cody Hills and to Jeff Shane, as well as to JT Wilcox. And on behalf of all of them, thank you to you. So until next week, we'll see you out on the playing fields.